Brian, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, we're going to start the program. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia.org. Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 8th, 2012. Today I'm going to, um, today I have Sword Brethren here again with me, and we're going to present part two of an article we began last week, an article by Mark Weber entitled, President Roosevelt's Campaign to Incite War in Europe, the Secret Polish Documents. The first part of the article, for the most part, Brian, am I getting feedback from you? I don't believe so. Wow, I'm getting feedback. The first part of the article, for the most part, discusses the nature and authenticity of the documents in question, how they were discovered and brought to light by Germany early in the war, how their authenticity was later denied by many of the prominent Americans involved with America's entry in the war, and the proofs that they are indeed authentic. Now we are in the part of the article which describes two key ambassadors. Count Jerzy Pataki, the Polish ambassador in Washington, and William C. Bullitt, the part Jew Philadelphia banker and Roosevelt's so-called super ambassador, who evidently had a large part not only in helping to engineer America's entry in the war, but in engineering the beginnings of the war itself. Here I will reread part of the section of Weber's article, which we ended with last week. After some opening comments from Sword Brethren. Oh, okay. Well, it seems to me that most of the people in the West... Their understanding still today is, of course, the um, if you ask them about the Pataki papers, they've never heard of them. And the war was, of course, to save Poland. Germany, in an act of naked, unprovoked aggression, attacked Poland in a brutal, horrible, horrendous fashion, just lusting for their land as part of their campaign in the East and their um, Lebensraum program. And, of course, Britain and France had no choice but to declare war on Germany because Germany invaded Poland and they were duty-bound, treaty-bound, and honor-bound to defend Poland. But declaring war on the Soviet Union when the Soviets attacked from the east, no, 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 that would have been far too much. It was They had their hands full fighting Germany. And the fact is that Poland, along with Czechoslovakia, those are two states that never should have been created. You know, Wilson's 14 points, all that talk about self-determination after World War One. That was all such lovely talk, but then they lumped three million Germans into this newly created Czechoslovakia. They lumped Romanians, Hungarians, Poles for that matter, and Ukrainians in there as well. And none of these people wanted to be in Czechoslovakia. The Czechs and Slovaks couldn't get along with themselves or each other. So Czechoslovakia was basically a state that was only created to cause problems and to help fuel the flames of a future war from the very get-go. And Woodrow Wilson claimed that he was ignorant as to the fact that there were three million Germans living in the um, 
Sudetenland at the time that, that those territories were handed over to the newly created Czechoslovakia. He claims he was deceived by the Czechoslovak statesmen he was negotiating with. And as for Poland, Poland had, of course, large numbers of German minorities, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Lithuanians. And it's important to keep in mind that within several years of the creation of Poland, Poland attacked almost all of its neighbors in one fashion or another. They were in a war with the Soviet Union. They um, put a territorial claim on Minsk. They claimed almost all the way up to Smolensk. Of course, they, didn't, they, they weren't able to exercise those claims. The war didn't go their way in that regard. But they still said that their rightful land extended almost all the way up to Smolensk and to most of what is modern Belarus. And I believe they had some skirmishes with the Lithuanians. And, of course, they invaded Silesia in Germany, trying to um, wrench it away and, and um, wrest control of it from the German Reich, the um, Weimar government. They well, well, Germany well, well, and, hmm? The bottom line is that Versailles guaranteed war, right? It guaranteed that, that, that was the whole point. The creation of Poland, the creation of Czechoslovakia guaranteed war. And the, um, the Western narrative, though, was that Poland was this great peaceful democracy and Hitler tried to rape it. Poland had been a military junta, a dictatorship since 1927. A military general just declared himself the leader in Poland, suspended all elections, and set up a dictatorship. And he started talking about greater Poland, recovering Poland's ancestral lands, which somehow included all the way up to Smolensk in the east and all the way um, west of Berlin in the west. And Poland has never controlled anywhere around Berlin. They've never been west of the Oder River. So their claim, that this historical claim, and re, re, um, regaining lost Polish territory, it was utter nonsense. It was just naked aggression and Polish expansionism. So Poland was running reckless, and they basically gotten checkmated by the Soviets. You know that they fought that brief war with the Soviets in 2021. They were able to assure and maintain their independence, but they didn't get all the lands they wanted in the east. So then, of course, they invaded into the west, and with the um, Freikorps checking them and turning them back. And they kept rattling the saber for the next 10 to 15 years. And finally, Hitler just said, you know, enough's enough. If you're going to send terrorist, you know, parties and militias and engage in skirmishes inside Germany and you're going to mistreat the hundreds of thousands of not several million Germans living in Poland, then we're not going to tolerate this. It's intolerable and unacceptable. And today, a lot of people in the West talk about how it's okay to go to war for human rights issues or humanitarian problems or if there's genocide in the Sudan or if some Albanian stubs his toe in Kosovo when he's trying to sneak up on a Serb, it's okay to go after the Serbs to stop them and protect those wonderful, decent Albanians who only want to make themselves at home in someone else's home. Yet when the Germans are standing in Germany, looking across the border and seeing their, their racial cousins get raped, mutilated, hacked to pieces by Polish lynch mobs, the Germans are just supposed to sit there and twiddle their thumbs and say, okay, Poles, that's fine. What else can we get you? Would you like the um, western, you know, or the eastern third of our nation so you can add it and make it western Poland instead of it being eastern Germany? The fact is that Hitler's invasion of Poland was justified from all precedent in international law. It was justified on ethical and humanitarian grounds. It was justified militarily because Poland attacked them first. It was justified diplomatically because Poland refused all diplomatic negotiations. They basically walked away from the table, but that's not the western narrative. Most people have never heard of Pataki. They don't know about the stage that was set at, um, at Versailles for the new war with Czechoslovakia and Poland being created out of thin air. Poland is a nation that just should not exist. It should have been partitioned between Germany and Russia or Germany and the Soviet Union, depending on when they were signing the treaties. But Germany had gained all that land under the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, and they just had to give it up under the Treaty of Versailles. 
And I think at the time, the people in Poland, the people in Ukraine, the people in what became Belarus, they probably would have preferred to be under German rule into the 20s as opposed to going with the Soviets. But they weren't consulted. They were just told, hey, the German army has to leave, the Austrian army has to leave, and all this territory that the Germans were given by the um, Bolshevik regime under the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, that's going back to the Bolsheviks. I'm sure none of those people wanted to be in the, under the Bolshevik rule. And I, I just wanted to get that out there, that Wilson's self-serving 14 points and all his talk about self-determination was really just that, self-serving talk, empty phrases and just platitudes. It sounded really great, but when it came time to exercise it, 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 it was shown that self-determination does not extend to Germans living in the Sudetenland, to Germans living in Austria. The Germans in Austria wanted to unify with Germany basically as soon as the war ended and Austria-Hungary was broken up, but they were explicitly told, no, you cannot unify with Germany. You have to stay in this new state we're creating called Austria. And, of course, the Germans in the Sudetenland were stranded. The Germans in East Prussia were marooned and isolated because they lost the um, access way through the Danzig Corridor. And the Germans in Danzig, it was 90% German in population. They were told, you have to stay in Poland, too. So so much talk of self-determination. In practice, there was none, unless you're a Pole, a Czech, a Slovak, or probably a Jew, I suppose, too, since there's always some Jew behind the scenes telling people, vote this way and go lunch a German. I mean, the, the Poles are culturally inferior, and they, they, they don't have a whole lot of accomplishments, but I've I found that they're reasonably decent for the most part, and I think somebody had to incite them to form lynch mobs and kill Germans. I don't think they just woke up and said, let's go lynch some Germans, because that's, I've found that the Poles to be relatively reasonable and stable. They're, just, they're not that sort of vicious, hate-mongering, Bolshevik animal, so I'm sure behind the scenes somewhere, there were Jews agitating. Well, there almost certainly were, and, and, and we're learning from these documents that um, FDR took, it, took advantage of that bellicosity in Poland in, in order to actually, FDR actually began World War II, right? Is that mm -hmm. fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, Wilson promised to keep us out of World War One. As soon as the election was over and it was no longer an issue, he immediately violated his promise and did everything he could to get us in World War One. And then FDR pledged to keep us out of World War Two. He said, you know, Europe will fight its own wars, Japan and their, their business with China is between Japan and China, but he did everything he could. He put Americans in harm's way in the east. He, you know, the, um, the gunboat Panay that was sank on the, I believe it was sank on the Yangtze River. I'm not sure of the river, though, but it was sank because the Japanese mistook it for a Chinese gunboat. And that's a, a question right there. Why is a U.S. naval gunboat in the middle of an active war zone on a river in China when there's a war raging between Japan and China. Roosevelt said it was part of a neutrality patrol. Well, excuse me, I, I, I may not be a, a consummate politician with 30 years' experience. I'm just a young man in his 20s. But to me, the idea of a neutrality patrol in the middle of someone else's war zone, that, that just seems like a very odd concept, although maybe I'm not as learned in international affairs as I need to be. But I, I have trouble wrapping my, my mind around that concept. The problem is that American citizens buy that garbage, right? Well, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm trying to imagine a citizen in the 30s hearing this. I think it was 1936 when the Panay was sank. I'm just trying to imagine neutrality patrol in the middle of a Japanese-Chinese war zone 4,000 miles away, neutrality patrol, American gunboat. The, the, the dots aren't connecting. It's not adding up. The, there's no reason that gunboat had to be on that river. In fact, it should it should have been anywhere but that river. 
it's like a peacekeeping force, and you stick it in the middle of someone else's war zone, and then you wonder why you get hit. I mean, Roosevelt, his conduct did not match up with his words. He spoke like a man of peace and said, oh, we're going to keep America out of the war. We're going to be neutral. But then you look at um, even in 1940 when the war had started in 39, and he's passing the Neutrality Act. He declared that he would sell weapons on a cash-and-carry basis, meaning that whoever wants to buy them, if they're a belligerent in the war, they have to come to the U.S. and pick them up and then take them away. That's, that's a de facto policy of only selling to France and Britain because Germany had no merchant marine capable of coming across the ocean to take delivery of the goods, and the British would have seized the ships anyway because the Americans would have broadcast their position. So saying that we'll sell weapons to whoever wants to come buy them, that's basically an invitation that a British, send your Royal Navy, send your merchant marine, and we'll load them up. So he, he speaks about peace, but he does everything he can to chain our fate to that of the British. Well, well my point was that Roosevelt not only... <coughs> did everything he could to get us into World War II. He did everything he could to actually start World War II. Absolutely. And not only that, at the end of it, he did everything he could to see that while we won the war militarily, we lost the peace because the majority of the lands that we had been fighting in were handed over to the Soviets or the Chinese communists. So not only did we fight this horrible fratricidal war against the Germans and Italians and I can't say fratricidal because the Japanese aren't our racial brethren, but they were still a decent people who didn't deserve to have their empire robbed from them and their homeland subjected to firebombing and nuclear bombing. So not only did we fight this horrible war against three powers that had done nothing to us, I mean, aside from Japan being provoked into attacking Pearl Harbor, but at the end of it, we handed over all of Manchuria to the Chinese communists who then used it to launch their attack upon the rest of China, secure China, they moved into northern Korea and the Korean Peninsula, which provided the next war, which I believe the Korean War was intended to spark World War III, but it didn't. That was the intention, though. I mean, Korea, it was basically just to be a continuation of World War II and roll into the next great world war. We gave basically maybe half to two-thirds of Europe to either Stalin or Tito in the south, who, of course, had a split with Stalin, but they're all still communists, so to some extent they're all marching to the beat of the same drum. So this war for freedom, I think it was um, Douglas Reed who said that no American can, he said no American can explain away the contradiction between deed and, or um, between word and deed, that the first American president, Wilson, spoke about a war to make the world safe for democracy and a war for freedom and halt the Hun, but at the conclusion of the war, it saw the birth of communism and the rise of communism. And then a second American president talking about arsenal of democracy, freedom, and stopping evil and imperialism brought America into another great world war, which expanded the size and scope of the communist revolution. And he, he pointed out that prior to World War I, of course, no territory was under communist rule. After World War I, the largest country in Europe was under communist rule. And after World War II, about 40 to 50 percent of the world's population and probably 30% of the land area in the world was under communist rule. And both of these wars were ostensibly fought for the advancement of freedom. Well, well, if people, you know, the average American cannot see the, the disparity between the propaganda and the outcome, and, and the propaganda still, you know, roots in favor of American patriotism, which is selling them down the river, I, I, I mean... That what, what can you say? They deserve their punishment. That well, the average I mean, American I, yeah. deserves everything he gets. 
they're idiots. They don't ask the obvious questions, and it's almost as though they're being blatantly and overtly lied to. In fact, they are, and they just don't realize it because it doesn't occur that I'm the question authority. If I tell you I will pour you a glass of water and then I stick a cup of some disgusting-looking brown liquid in front of you or some black liquid and there's sediment and crap floating in it and there's a dead insect, you, you, you might do well to ask me, well, is that water or is that just you know sewer, sewer crap that you just took out right. of the sewer? The, the bottom line is that in the 20th century, the American armed forces were used by international Jewry in order to enslave the rest of the world. There's no doubt. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the victory of the Western powers in the Second World War marked the beginning of the end of our civilization. The decline and fall of white Western civilization will at some point by later historians, assuming there are people that record history and care about history, be um, attributed and taken back to the period of 1944 to 1945. Well, let's get to our article. Let's, um, uh, let's get to our presentation here. This is what, I'm going to back up a little to the beginning of the section where we left off last week because the, these first two um, that these first two sections are uh, of this part of the article called the documents it is quite important I believe and deserves to be repeated. This is from Mark Weber. Here now are the extensive excerpts from the Polish documents themselves, which proved that Franklin Roosevelt assisted in beginning. World War II. They are given in chronological order. They are remarkably lucid for diplomatic reports and speak eloquently for themselves. On February 9, 1938, the Polish ambassador in Washington, Count Jerzy Pataki, reported to the foreign minister in Warsaw on the Jewish role in making American foreign policy. The pressure of the Jews on President Roosevelt and on the State Department is becoming even more powerful. The Jews are right now now, the, these are the words of the Polish ambassador, right? The Jews are right now the leaders in creating a war psychosis which would plunge the entire world into war and bring about general catastrophe. This mood is becoming more and more apparent. In their definition of democratic states, the Jews have also created real chaos. They have mixed together the idea of democracy and communism and have, above all, raised the banner of burning hatred against Nazism. This hatred has become a frenzy. It is propagated everywhere and by every means, in theaters, in the cinema, and in the press. The Germans are portrayed as a nation living under the arrogance of Hitler, which wants to conquer the whole world and drown all of humanity in an ocean of blood. Of course, that couldn't have been further from the truth. Now, Bill, about this greatest generation, if they were so great and they saw this propaganda barrage, shouldn't it have occurred that a lot of them, the lobby, call their congressmen, write their congressmen and say, hey, this is dangerous, this was reckless, Germany's done nothing to us, these movies need to stop, these headlines need to stop, this is hatred, this is inflammatory incitement to a war with a, a power that we have no quarrel with. If they were, you know, truly moral, decent people, they would have opposed that reckless, hateful propaganda. It's the same sort of reckless, hateful propaganda we're seeing today as a, a prelude to a buildup of a potential war with Iran or at least some sort, of, some sort of attack on Iran, if not outright war. Well, even today there's a good percentage of the country that sees the propaganda in, in, in the, and the lies being perpetrated both in Iraq and, and in Iran and in Libya also. But most of the country doesn't see it. They refuse to open their eyes to it, and they would readily go along with it. 
you know, some of my coworkers, they were just making flippant remarks that if Iran wants to be a nuclear power, we should, you know, um, take all of our spent fuel and just dump it all over them and let them glow in the dark and just making offhand remarks like that, you know, oh, if, uh, if America's running out of places to store its spent fuel, we can store it all over Iran. And that shows that the, the, the hold that the mainstream media has on the minds of the general public. It's incredible. If you don't come away from that television, you'll never see anything objectively. And, and we're told that the Iranians chant death to America when it's actually translated properly. It's down with America. And there is a difference and there is a distinction. And I think it's important to make that difference and distinction because from what I've read, from Americans who actually travel to Iran, they say that the Iranian people are very concerned about the politics and the present state of affairs in America, but they don't mistreat American tourists or yell at them or blame them for policy. They just want to know why is the American government acting so mean towards Iran, and they're having trouble understanding because they don't feel they've done anything to deserve the, the criticism, the sanctions, the media barrage, and they want to know, you know, if Americans truly hate Iranians or if it's just the government. Well, it's just the Jew, and the Jews are running the government and the media, right? Absolutely, and, and, and everything that's being said about Germany in the 30s is now being said about Iran. Hitler wants to take over the world. Ahmadinejad either wants to take over the world or end the world in nuclear fire, and that's just absolutely absurd. That there's there's no basis in fact for any of the statements that the media makes about Ahmadinejad, just like... It, it, the media with Hitler, if they couldn't find a nasty quote from Hitler himself that would tend to discredit him, they just invent a quote. Or that quote they attribute to Hitler about how wonderful it is for rulers that men do not think or that subjects do not think. That could have been a cynical observation about life in Weimar, couldn't it? And they're, they're misattributing or they're, they're taking it out of context. Well, right. I haven't seen the actual quote. I, I couldn't comment on it, but most of the things that they do get right are still nevertheless taken out of context. Most of the quotes that they can actually cite are nevertheless taken out of context. Look at the big lie. Look at Adolf Hitler's, um, how he described the big lie in Mein Kampf and use that to explain what the Jewish media does. And the, the Jewish media today has turned it around on Adolf Hitler, right? And apply it to the Holocaust. He was writing about how dangerous lies are and how the people are susceptible to lies. He wasn't writing a, a how-to lie guide. Well, well, right. He was explaining how a, a totally blatant lie can actually be uh, become truth in the eyes of the public when it's repeated enough times by large enough voices. And my grandmother, who was had come of age just around the end of World War II, she said that people back then more or less knew on some basic level, that the Jews were basically inborn communists. They were behind communism in the Soviet Union, and they were behind the communist agitation in the U.S. And she said that it, uh, just for the most part, most people didn't really care enough to do anything about it, though. You know, we, they, they knew about it, but they didn't want to interrupt their lives or do anything drastic to actually do something about it. Well, well what amazes me most about Roosevelt and, and the build-up to World War II is all the treachery that the military was involved in, and not one military officer evidently stood up and did anything about it. And the propaganda is so extensive back then, too, that my grandmother still has a positive view of FDR, attributing the um, successful resolution of the Depression to his leadership, which is 
fairly common for, you know, most Americans from, you know, all generations, especially the generations from back then. Well, well, my grandmother's of, of the mind that he saved the country. He saved the country from the Depression. He saved the country from the war, and, and he's a hero. But she's been on Social Security handouts for 30 years. She, she worked and retired at 65, but she's been collecting Social Security for 30 years. And, and that scheme's not going to work. If we all lived 30 years past retirement age, they'd have to print an awful lot more phony dollars to pay all those Social Security payments. I think at, at the end of the day, Social Security was intended to drive a permanent wedge between the old and the young. That way, you know, young people look up at these old people who worked for 40 or 50 years and conceivably could have or should have saved up money for their retirement, and now they're getting payouts from current workers because the government took all their payouts when they were working and squandered the money instead of investing it to pay people, and they resent that. Well, let's get back to our topic. Let's get back to Count Jersey Pataki. In conversations with Jewish press representatives, I have repeatedly come up against the inexorable and convinced view that war is inevitable. This international Jewry exploits every means of propaganda to oppose any tendency towards any kind of consolidation and understanding between nations. In this way, the conviction is growing steadily but surely in public opinion here that the Germans and their satellites in the form of fascism are enemies who must be subdued by the, and he puts it in quotes, democratic world. On November well, 20th, Bill, not, not to um, go off on too much of a tangent here, just a, a real quick aside. They're trying to make diplomacy impossible with Iran right now with the Iran Threat Reduction Act, outlawing any American who has an official capacity with the American government, State Department, etc., from having any contact with any Iranian government official or agent of the Iranian government. And, of course, just like with Germany, when, when you remove diplomacy as an option, you take away the diplomatic table, war is now inevitable. So we, we see history is repeating itself. It's a pattern they've developed that's effective, it works, and, and they employ it again and again. FDR torpedoed German-Polish diplomacy, and now Obama is outlawing any attempts at diplomacy with Iran because he doesn't want a diplomatic solution. On November 21st, 1938, Ambassador Pataki sent a report to Warsaw which discussed in some detail a conversation between himself and Bullitt, meaning William C. Bullitt, who we discussed at length last week, who happened to be back in Washington. And here are the notes from Pataki's papers. The day before yesterday, I, Pataki, had a long conversation with Ambassador Bullitt, who is here on vacation. He, he began by remarking that friendly relations existed between himself and Polish Ambassador Lukasiewicz in Paris, whose company he had greatly enjoyed. Since Bullitt regularly informs President Roosevelt about the international situation in Europe, and particularly about Russia, great attention is given to his reports by President Roosevelt and the State Department. Bullitt speaks energetically and interestingly, nonetheless, his reaction to events in Europe resembles the view of a journalist more than that of a politician. Bullitt is the one-quarter Jewish Philadelphia banker who was 
Roosevelt's super ambassador to, to basically, he was the ambassador to France and became Roosevelt's super ambassador to all of Europe, far exceeding his um, Senate confirmation, right? Do you know, was he related to William Marshall Bullitt, who was the Solicitor General of the United States? I, I couldn't tell you that. About Germany and Chancellor Hitler, he, meaning Bullet, this is Pataki speaking about Bullet, spoke with great vehemence and strong hatred. He said that only force and ultimately a war would put an end to the insane future of German expansionism. Remember that Bullet is a banker, a Philadelphia banker. To my question, and a Jew, right? To my question, asking how he visualized this coming war, he replied that above all, the United States, France, and England must rearm tremendously in order to be in a position to oppose German power. Only then, when the moment is ripe, declared Bullet further, will one be ready for the final decision. I asked him in, in what way a final conflict could arise, since Germany would probably not attack England and France first. I simply could not see the connecting point in this whole combination. It seems like Bullet's the one that was promoting the final solution, right? Exactly, and the connecting point, you know, I mean, Pataki can't see it, and Bullet doesn't want to say we're going to offer up your country as a sacrificial lamb to get a war rolling, then after your country's been clobbered, we'll destroy Germany and leave your country in the hands of the Soviets. I, I, I think if Pataki had heard that, things might have turned out differently. <laughs> I'm sure. Bullet replied that the Democratic countries absolutely needed another two years. That, now, this is 1938, right? Until they were fully armed. In the meantime, Germany would probably have advanced with its expansion in an easterly direction. It would be the wish of the democratic countries that the armed conflict would break out there, in the east, between the German Reich and Russia. As the Soviet Union's potential strength is not yet known, it might happen that Germany would have moved too far away from its base and would be condemned to wage a long and weakening war. Only then would the democratic countries attack Germany, Bullet declared, and force her to capitulate. In my reply, I'm sorry, in reply to my question whether the United States would take part in such a war, he said, undoubtedly yes, but only after Great Britain and France had let loose first. Feeling in the United States was no was so intense against Nazism and Hitlerism that a psychosis already prevails today among Americans similar to that before America's declaration of war against Germany in 1917. Bullet did not give the impression of being very well informed about the situation in Eastern Europe, and he conversed in a rather superficial way. That's Potocki's remarks. Ambassador Pataki's report from Washington of the 9th of January, 1939, dealt in large part with President Roosevelt's annual address to Congress. And he said, President Roosevelt acts on the assumption that the dictatorial governments, above all Germany and Japan, only understand a policy of force. Therefore, he has decided to react against, I'm sorry, to react to any future blows by matching them. This has been demonstrated by the most recent measures of the United States. The American public is subject to an ever more alarming propaganda which is under Jewish influence and continuously conjures up the specter of the danger of war. Because of this, the Americans 
have strongly altered their views on foreign policy problems in comparison with last year, which was 1938. Back to Mark Weber. Of all the documents in this collection, the most revealing is probably the secret report by, the amb- by Ambassador Pataki of January 12, 1939, which dealt with the domestic situation in the United States. This report is giving, given here in full. Now we're back to Jersey Pataki. Well, one thing I wonder about, they're warning Pataki, Bullet, is that they expect Germany to pursue an easterly expansion. And I, and I have to wonder, what would have happened if Germany had just bided their time, continued tolerating what Poland was doing, or, you know, prompted a wave of refugees to just flee Poland and come into Germany instead of crossing, you know, into Poland to deal with the humanitarian crisis? What would have happened if Germany never crossed into Poland and ultimately around that same time, you know, September of 39 or maybe a few months later, the Soviets invaded from the West and it was simply a, a, a sole Soviet invasion? I imagine the Western powers would have condemned it but done nothing about it, and Poland probably would have begged Germany, please let us join the Axis powers and defend us. We'll give you back Danzig if you drive the Soviets away. And I think well, the well right, but it's, it's, but it's evident to me that the Soviets never would have invaded unless they had that cover of German invasion to, to hide behind. That way, they, that way um, in fact, in some propaganda from the time, I think it was um, Why We Fight. You've seen that propaganda trite, right, that came out after America joined the war? Mm-hmm. They talked about the um, the Poland being divided up and how the Soviets had to move in to secure a buffer zone against Nazi aggression, hmm. which is absolute trite because their buffer zone was two-thirds of all of Poland. They got they, the lion's share of the territory. They just happened to have the troops there at the right time to do it, right? I'm sure it was a coincidence. <laughs> Back to Jersey Pataki and his remarks concerning the domestic situation in the United States. The feeling now prevailing in the United States is marked by a growing hatred of fascism and, above all, of Chancellor Hitler. And and we can prove beyond doubt that, and and we have in programs here, that fascism was basically a Christian form of government reacting to Jewish capitalism or Jewish Bolshevism, either way, and and that Hitler was was a good Christian man who developed his political philosophies along... Christian foundations. There's no you know, doubt. There's a, there's a video of a Mussolini speech in English, because he, he spoke English, French, German, and, of course, Italian. There's a speech of him talking in English. He's addressing Americans and Italian-Americans in particular, talking about how he, he hopes that they can continue to maintain themselves in America, stay in America, help build up the nation, be productive, decent, good American citizens, and he, he just, you know, briefly discusses the contributions that Italians have made to American history. At no point did he say, you know, work as a fifth column, help pave the way for an Italian fascist takeover of America, or, you know, get the, you know, um, put lamps out on the coast so our submarines and our boats can land at night. He, he never said anything like that. And if there is indeed a growing hatred of fascism, and I don't doubt it, it's solely due to the recklessness and the hatred of the Jewish media basically starting a fire and then dumping gasoline on it. Well, well they wanted to destroy any chance uh, of a, a, a resurrection of Christian governments in Europe. The feeling now prevailing in the United States is marked by a growing hatred of fascism and, above all, Chancellor Hitler. 
and everything connected with Nazism. Propaganda is mostly in the hands of the Jews who control almost 100% of the radio, film, daily, and periodical press. And they still do. Although this propaganda is extremely coarse and presents Germany as black as possible, above all, religious persecution and concentration camps are exploited. This propaganda is nevertheless extremely effective since the public here is completely ignorant and knows nothing of the situation in Europe. Right now, most Americans regard Chancellor Hitler and Nazism as the greatest evil and greatest danger threatening the world. That's probably true if you're a Jew, right? That's your perspective, right? The situation here provides an excellent platform for public speakers of all kinds, for emigrants from Germany and Czechoslovakia, who don't spare any words to incite the public here with every kind of slander. They praise American liberty, which they contrast with the totalitarian states. He says these are public speakers of all kinds, and he should have written public speakers who are Jews who have left Germany. Right, that's what it seems like, right. It is interesting to note that in this extremely well-planned campaign, which is conducted above all against National Socialism, Soviet Russia is almost completely excluded. If mentioned at all, it is only in a friendly manner, and things are presented in such a way as if Soviet Russia were working with the bloc of democratic states. Thanks to the clever propaganda sympathy of the American public, it's completely on the side of Red Spain. And, you know, this is a propaganda poster in World War II. It says, this is what we are fighting to prevent. And it shows a jackboot with a swastika coming down over the steeple of a church and breaking the church into pieces. And it just amused me that here they are supposedly fighting a war for the freedom of Christianity by siding with people such as Lazar Kagonovich, who blew up the um, Church of Christ the Savior in Moscow and who led a campaign to level basically every single church and cathedral in the Soviet Union. Then when the American soldiers came back home, the American government, you know, pushed on all that 501c3 and basically gutted the heart and soul of American Christianity. And I found an interesting, you know, quote from this Jewess who left Germany because her, her, her kind were no longer welcome to commit usury and conduct themselves as Jews conduct themselves. They were basically told, become productive citizens or leave, and they chose to leave. She said that every child says Heil Hitler at least 50 to 150 times a day, and that the Germans end all of their evening prayers with Heil Hitler, and the church services begin with Heil Hitler and end with Heil Hitler. Now, there's, of course... For an American hearing this, there's really no way to disprove what she's saying unless you've been there and you know that it's not true or you have close family and friends there that can tell you it's not true. So the Americans are just hearing this fantasy version of Germany that it's not backed up by reality. And it just seems interesting, though, that there's all this talk about religious freedom and defending Christianity with all these propaganda posters I've seen. Yet at the end of the war... I mean, how was Christianity faring in the 50s throughout most of Europe? Just ask yourself that question. I don't even need to answer it or address it here. Just ask yourself the question, answer it for yourself, and you'll know what the war was about. Regarding the first point, it must be said that the internal situation on the labor market is steadily growing worse. The un and he's talking about America, right? The unemployed today already number 12 million. Federal and state expenditures are increasing daily. Only the huge sums running into billions, which Treasury expends for emergency labor projects, 
in other words, which Treasury borrows from the Federal Reserve, right, are keeping a certain amount of peace in the country. Thus far, there have only been the usual strikes and local unrest. But how long this kind of government aid can be kept up cannot be predicted, and, and we see the same pattern today. The excitement and indignation of public opinion and the serious conflict between private enterprises and enormous trusts on the one hand, and with labor on the other, had made many enemies for Roosevelt and are causing him many sleepless nights. Well, never the worry, because enemies such as Huey P. Long, they wound up meeting most convenient deaths at the hands of their own bodyguards. So Roosevelt seemed to have a knack for silencing or neutralizing his enemies, didn't he? Absolutely. It's still going on. As to point two, I can only say that President Roosevelt, as a po clever political player and an expert of the American mentality, I, I think that's giving him way too much credit, right? Uh, I think he's just a pawn of the same people that steer and create the American mentality, right? Absolutely. And, you know, Obama, Roosevelt, these people, they're not political animals or the consummate politicians they're made out to be. They're just sock puppets for clever, crafty Jews. I can only say that President Roosevelt, as a clever political player and an expert of the American mentality, speedily steered public attention away from the domestic situation to fasten it on foreign policy. The way to achieve this was simple. One needed, on the one hand, to conjure up a war menace by hanging over the world, a war menace hanging over the world because of Chancellor Hitler, and on the other hand, to create a specter by babbling about an attack of the totalitarian states against the United States. And it was a babel. The Munich Pact came to President Roosevelt as a godsend. He portrayed it as a capitulation of France and England to bellicose German militarism. As people say here, Hitler compelled Chamberlain at pistol point. Hence, France and England had no choice and had to conclude a shameful peace. The prevalent hatred against everything which is in any way connected with German Nazism is further kindled by the brutal policy against the Jews in Germany and by the emigre problem, that they weren't being um, herded off to die in concentration camps at this time, right? They, that they were, or at any time, that they were creating an emigre problem. They, they were simply having the Jews leave Germany. I mean, that's not brutal. They're, they're a foreign alien element that is... That, that has worked against German, the good of the German nation for how many years, and, and it's a brutal policy to remove them? That, that's what people would say today about the Mexicans here, right? Well, look what happened in Kosovo. Just a, a brief, you know, momentary background on the situation. Prior to the rise of communism under Tito, Kosovo was approximately 90% ethnic Serbs, and with the communist open borders, more or less, and the idea that people should be free to come and go as they please and that borders are an artificial creation of the vanity of nations, the Albanians were allowed and indeed encouraged to flood into Kosovo to break up the Serb majority and make it a mishmash cosmopolitan province such that by 1990, Kosovo was now approximately 80 to 90 percent Albanian. And they began a campaign of terror, burning churches, murdering police, assassinating politicians, raping women, hacking men to pieces. And, of course, the Serbs responded 
by sending several battalions of mechanized infantry and well-armed police to restore order and hunt down the terrorists and the bandits, and the West immediately denounced this as genocide. So if someone burns down my house and kills my family and the military comes in to help me and they say, okay, we're going to you know, help rebuild the farm for you and we're going to track down the people who um, slaughtered your family, that now becomes genocide in, in the eyes of the controlled Western media. And then they started bombing the Serbs. And, of course, a year or so after the bombing campaign, the French general that was part of the NATO mission, he, he candidly said, we bombed the wrong side. The Serbs were the, the right people, and we went against them. So he had the moral courage to admit that he had been on the wrong side, and that takes a lot of guts to admit that, doesn't it? Well, of course. That's why they killed Patton, right? The prevalent hatred against everything which is in any way connected with German Nazism is further kindled by the brutal policy against the Jews in Germany and by the emigre problem. That, that tells us what the brutal policy was, right? Well, the, the brutal policy is like you said. When a nation practices Christianity, Jews either have to leave or they starve to death, or they become subsistence farmers and laborers, and it's not in them to become those things. So if Absolutely. Jews are told that... You can't engage in prostitution, pimping, peddling pornography, peddling dope and usury, and operating your pawn shops and all your other, you know, we buy gold schemes and scams. You have to engage in honest labor or leave. Their only option is to leave or starve to death, and they're not going to starve to death, so they leave. Absolutely. And then they, bring, they, they go to some new nation, hijack it, or they go to a nation that their kin elsewhere have already hijacked, and they bring that nation down upon the old nation. How dare you shut down our rackets in Germany? We'll go to America and bring the the full might of the, the white American army down on you, Germany. And that's what they did. In this action, various Jewish intellectuals participated. For instance, Bernard Baruch, the governor of New York State, Lehman, the newly appointed judge of the Supreme Court, Felix Frankfurter, all of these are Jews, of course, right? Secretary of the Treasury, Morgenthau, and others who were close personal friends of President Roosevelt. They wanted the president to become the champion of human rights, Jewish rights, I guess. Well, freedom of religion and speech, and the man who in the future will punish troublemakers or punish those evil anti-Semites, right? Well, an interesting aside, Governor Lehman of New York, Herbert Henry Lehman, he was one of the original Lehman Brothers. He was a founder of the Lehman Brothers banking firm, which, of course, we all, all know is defunct as of, what, 2008. But that just shows you Jewish power and, and the fact that uh, Americans don't care that an elite investment banker wants to become governor of an entire state. That should have been a scandal. Well, today it's Bloomberg, the elite investment banker who's the mayor of New York City. has been for 10, 12 years now. It's been a while. Um, there, there was another one in New Jersey. I, I forget his name, but it was back in the 90s, who became the senator from New Jersey. Corzine. Corzine. He, he was a, an, an elite billionaire investment banker that became a United States senator. These groups of people who occupy the highest positions in the American government and want to pose as representatives of true Americanism and defenders of democracy are, in the last analysis connected by unbreakable ties with international Jewry. And they all happen to be Jews, and this is a Polish ambassador in 1939 making these observations. So he can see this, yet he can't see the writing on the wall that Britain and France 
and by extension America, don't care about Poland, and they're getting ready to use Poland, and when they're done using Poland, they're going to toss it aside and let the Soviets clean up the pieces. He, he couldn't see that. So he, he can see international Jewry. He knows who they are. He knows how dangerous they are. He knows they're in control of the United States, yet presumably he, he believes them when they say, we will defend Poland no matter what, and Poland will be free. If we have to drive the Germans out, if it takes 100,000 lives in 10 years, we'll drive them out. Don't negotiate with the Germans. Shouldn't, shouldn't it have computed in his brain? These are lying international Jewish bankers. They're not caring about, they don't care about Poland. They're not going to save Poland. And all their promises to the contrary, they'll sacrifice Poland in a heartbeat. For this Jewish international which above all is concerned with the interests of its race. To portray the President of the United States as the idealist champion on human rights was a very clever move. In this manner, they have created a dangerous hotbed for hatred and hostility in this hemisphere and divided the world into two hostile camps. The entire issue is worked out in a masterly manner. Roosevelt has been given the foundation for activating American foreign policy and simultaneously has been procuring enormous military stocks for the coming war. This was written in 1939. For which the Jews are striving very consciously. With regard to domestic policy, it is very convenient to divert public attention from anti-Semitism, which is constantly growing in the United States, by talking about the necessity of defending religion and individual liberty against the onslaught of fascism. Now, now, didn't Roosevelt do that with what he called the four freedoms? Well, it seems today no one talks about the necessity of defending religion and liberty against the onslaught of big government socialism and atheism. I mean, today, the, the, the greatest threat to American Christianity today is the Jewish-dominated American government and the the so-called media, fair and balanced, whatever you want to call it, it's just Jew one and Jew two. Well, they have real Christians labeled as um, as, as murderers and, and 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 potential revolutionaries, right? Well, one thing I, I've noticed real quick here: whenever a Christian or someone claiming to be a Christian, or even someone who was baptized as a Christian, like that Brevik guy in Norway, he commits a heinous atrocity. The organized left in the mainstream media, or I'll just call it the Jewish media since it's basically Jewish, they take him to be a representative of the values of the collective Christian community, and they treat him as though he's the Pope, speaking for a large, you know, a large body of organized Christianity, and they say this is what Christian morality leads to, this is how Christians behave. Yet someone like Stalin, the um, organized left, they've done quite a number washing their hands of him disowning him and saying, oh, he wasn't a real communist, Mao wasn't a real communist, Envar Hocha wasn't a real communist. We haven't seen real communism yet. We need to give it another try. And that's very disingenuous and insincere because what they're really saying is we want a blank check to try again by claiming we've never seen it yet, and in the process maybe we'll kill another 10 or 20 million white Christian political enemies. But we'll give it another go, and I'm sure we'll get it right this time. And, of course, they know... Stalin was a textbook communist, Hocha was a textbook communist, Mao was a textbook communist. But these people, they're not taken to be representatives of communism as a whole, they're just anomalies. 
they're they're against the grain. They're outside the norm. A normal communist would be peaceful, loving. He would abolish the state, abolish the government, abolish the party, and pursue peaceful anarchy, as Marx wrote about abolishing. So, so a normal communist is a pot pot smoking hippie in a Nevada desert. Basically, yeah. Where we've seen we've seen what normal communists do. Normal communists kill 60 million white Christians in Eastern right. Europe. That's what normal communists do. Yes, it is. On January 16, 1939, Polish Ambassador Pataki reported to the Warsaw Foreign Ministry on another lengthy conversation he had with Roosevelt's personal envoy, William Bullitt. The day before yesterday, these are Pataki's words, I had a longer discussion with Ambassador Bullitt in the embassy where he called on me. Bullitt leaves on the 21st of this month for Paris, from where he has been absent for almost three months. He is sailing with a whole trunk full of instructions, conversations, and directives from President Roosevelt, the State Department, and senators who belong on the Committee on Foreign Affairs. In talking with Bullitt, I had the impression that he had received from President Roosevelt a very precise definition of the attitude taken by the United States towards the present European crisis. He will present this material at the Quai d'Orsay, the French Foreign Ministry, and I will make use of it in discussions with European statesmen. The contents of these directives, as Bullitt explained them to me in the course of the conversation lasting half an hour, were, number one, the vitalizing of foreign policy under the leadership of President Roosevelt, who severely and unambiguously condemns totalitarian countries. Two, United States preparations for war on sea, land, and air will be carried out at an accelerated pace and will consume the colossal sum of $1.25 billion. Of course, this is almost two years before Pearl Harbor. It is, number three, it is the decided opinion of the president of France of the president that France and Britain must put an end to any sort of compromise with the totalitarian countries. They must not get into any discussions aiming at any kind of territorial changes. And number four, they have the moral assurance that the United States will abandon the policy of isolation and be prepared to intervene actively on the side of Britain and France in case of war. America is ready to place its whole wealth of money and raw materials at their disposal. Do you have any comments? Well, that's quite a commitment Roosevelt's making here. and He must be pretty sure of himself because, as I've said before, at this time, the majority of white people in America were German and a very significant portion were Italian. Of course, there were a lot of Irish as well and, of course, English. And it's no shock that the Irish had no real love for the English, given what the English had done to Ireland for hundreds of years. And it seems odd for Roosevelt to believe that he can just move these people in lockstep and get German-Americans, Italian-Americans, and Irish-Americans. In the case of most of the Germans and Italians, they're either immigrants themselves or second, third generation at the latest, at the absolute latest, and just get them into a war with their homeland. I mean, if, if you were born in America... Your parents are from Germany. Your grandparents are from Germany. 
and Roosevelt tells you, hey, you need to go over to Germany and level it because they're a threat to world peace, they're a threat to democracy. I mean, they really have to do a number on your mind to get you to swallow all that and go along with that. So he must have been pretty sure of himself and pretty sure of the propaganda machine that he had rolling, or rather that his Jewish handlers had rolling. Well, well, it was clearly effective by this time. Absolutely. It was clearly effective in popular public opinion by this time. It's well, it's amazing what a grip the, the media had on on the American mind the the American minds right from the beginning. And the people didn't see it. They didn't question it. They didn't ask why are we being asked to go over the you know Italy and Germany and kill our cousins, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles. What's all this about? The Polish ambassador to Paris, Jules Lukasiewicz sent a top-secret report to the foreign ministry in Warsaw at the beginning of February 1939, which outlined U.S. policy towards Europe, as explained to him by William Bullard. And he says, A week ago, the ambassador of the United States, William Bullard, returned to Paris after three months' leave in America. Meanwhile, I have had two conversations with him, which enable me to inform you of the views, of his views, regarding the European situation and to give a survey of Washington's policy. And he states, The international situation is regarded by official circles as extremely serious and in constant danger of armed conflict. Those in authority are of the opinion that if war should break out between Britain and France on the one hand and Germany and Italy on the other, and should Britain and France be defeated, the Germans would endanger the real interests of the United States on the American continent. For this reason, well, one can... On its face, this claim is ridiculous. The idea that 80 million Germans present an existential threat to, what, 160, 180 million Americans at the time, and that Germany, with at the time, I think they had the um, the Bismarck was just coming out, the Tirpitz was under construction, the battle cruisers Scharnhorst and Eisenhower were active. They had four or five heavy cruisers, no aircraft carriers, no four-engine bombers. Their, their planes could barely make it to Britain and back. The idea that this Germany, with a navy consisting of at most nine capital ships and 30 U-boats, is somehow a threat to America and America had one of the largest navies in the world, I think indeed the largest navy in the world, at least 12 battleships, four or five aircraft carriers, dozens of light cruisers, over 100 destroyers. The idea that somehow the German nation of 80 million people are going to send an army sufficient to invade, force a beachhead, you know, break out into the countryside and then conquer and subdue and occupy a nation of 160-plus million that's by itself, America, if you tossed it into Europe, would stretch from the French coast about, you know, to Moscow. So America is a massive nation. The idea that Germany presents an existential threat to America, that's absurd. It's, it's obscene. It borders on vulgar. And anybody articulating that belief, I, I would have to challenge them as a lunatic or some sort of demented fool. Or somebody, of course, with an agenda of making Germany out to be this big, bad boogeyman who's going to destroy America. Well, it's well, obviously somebody with an agenda, right? I mean, the, the Jews were saying it long before Germany ever said it. Germany never said it. 
And, you know, they talk about motive and opportunity. The Germans certainly had no motive to want to hurt America, and they didn't have the opportunity. They didn't have the means even if they wanted to. And I don't think Hitler was the sort of person who would invade America and ask German soldiers to kill German-Americans, Italian-Americans, French-Americans, Irish-Americans, English-Americans. He recognized that America was basically a nation of white Europeans. And I had a, a history teacher once that said that in Mein Kampf, Hitler referred to America as a mongrel nation. Yes, and he talked did. about how it, that um, America should be wiped out and turned into a farming colony for the Aryan race. And I asked her, you know, on what, what page did he say that on? And she said, oh, it's in there. Well, well, he did refer to America as a mongrel nation or a nation of mongrels. He did do that, but but I don't remember the the exact terms which he put it in. But of course, he didn't say that it should be wiped out. That that didn't happen, right? In Hitler's definition, though, mongrel could just mean an amal amalgamation of various European ethnicities. Well, well, right, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Hitler saw the um, the specialized races of Europe, as I quoted last night, and and believed that they each had their own destination and, and yet, you know, their own special role assigned by the creator, right? But he also understood that they were joined together on what he called a higher plane, right? And I, and I quoted that citation from Mein Kampf in last night's program. It, it's very clear, right? However, considering... America, a mongrel nation, and an amalgamation of peoples from all over Europe who all intermarried with each other, even though they're all white, he, he understood that the culture was confused, that the culture was a, a, a degradation of what we see in classical European culture. Well, I think it's safe to say that in 1920s, 1930s Germany, it would be odd for a Hungarian, a Pole, an Italian, or a Spaniard to move into a German village in Bavaria and marry a German woman. That would probably raise some eyebrows in the village. I don't think they would lynch him, though. Where in America, nobody really thinks twice about an Irish marrying an English or a Scottish woman marrying an Italian or a German marrying a Pole. That's just, it's normal in an America white as white. Well, well in the 19th century, it, it was still considered taboo by most people who came over here. And I've experienced with this in my own family, with my own great-great-grandfather. However, um, by the 20th century, those lines were blurred or, or have actually dissipated. In, in my family, on my mother's side, there's a fair amount of animosity against the Irish for reasons I don't really understand. The international situation is regarded by official circles as extremely serious and in constant danger of armed conflict. Those in authority are of the opinion that if war should break out between Britain and France on the one hand and Germany and Italy on the other, and should Britain and France be defeated, the Germans would endanger the real interests of the United States on the American continent. For this reason, one can foresee right from the beginning the participation of the United States in the war on the side of France and Britain. Naturally, sometime after the outbreak of the war, as Ambassador Bullitt expressed it, and he quotes Bullet. Should war break out, we shall certainly not take part in it at the beginning, but we shall finish it. On March 7, 1939, Ambassador Pataki sent a remarkably lucid and perceptive report on Roosevelt's foreign policy to his government in Warsaw. 
This document was first made public when leading German newspapers published it in a German translation, along with a facsimile reproduction of the first page of the Polish original and their editions of the 28th of October, 1940. The main National Socialist Party newspaper, the Volkischer Beobachter, Beobachter, and that means People's Observer, by the way, okay, published the ambassador's report with this observation. The document itself needs no commentary. We do not know, and it does not concern us, whether the internal American situation as reported by the Polish diplomat is correct in every detail. That must be decided by the American people alone. But in the interest of historical truth, it is important for us to show that the warmongering activities of American diplomacy, especially in Europe, are once again revealed and proven by this document. And that was a common assertion of Adolf Hitler all throughout this period. It's well, in his declaration of war against America, Hitler even said that Roosevelt, a Freemason beholding the Jews, talks about peace, but everywhere he goes, he involves himself in the affairs of other nations, the conflicts and disputes of other nations, and he does everything in his power to prevent a peaceful resolution to the disputes and conflicts. Right, because he wanted war. It still remains a secret just who, and for what motives, have driven American diplomacy to this course. I think they do, they just didn't want to say, right? It's no secret. In any case, the results have been disastrous for both Europe and America. Europe was plunged into war, and America has brought upon itself the hostility of great nations, which normally have no differences with the American people and, indeed, have not been in conflict, but have lived through generations as friends and want to remain so. This report, that, that's the end of the, the um, article, the, the quote from the article from the Volkischer Beobachter. Now back to Mark Weber. This report was not one of the Polish documents which was released in March 1940 and published as part of the German White Book Number 3 or the German White Paper. However, it was published in 1943 as part of the collection entitled Roosevelt's Way into War. As far as I, meaning Mark Weber, can determine... This English translation is the first that has ever appeared. Ambassador Pataki's secret report of the 7th of March, 1939, is given here in full. And now to Pataki. The foreign policy of the United States right now concerns not only the government, but the entire American public as well. The most important elements are the public statements of President Roosevelt. In almost every public speech, he refers more or less explicitly to the necessity of activating foreign policy against the chaos of views and ideologies in Europe. These statements are picked up by the press and then cleverly filtered into the minds of average Americans in such a way as to strengthen their already formed opinions. The same theme is constantly repeated namely the danger of war in Europe and saving the democracies from inundation by enemy fascism 
In all of these public statements, there is normally only a single theme. That is, the danger from Nazism and Nazi Germany to world peace. They didn't have a Rothschild bank. Now, I wonder, the involvement of so many Americans in the Spanish Civil War, isn't that technically a violation of neutrality? I mean, if if you're Franco and you see that 5,000 American, quote, volunteers have been funneled into your country through the Soviets, and these are all American communists, and a lot of them are hardcore communists and even outright Jews, and the Americans aren't doing anything to prevent the communist recruitment of these volunteers in America, and they're not prohibiting these people from getting visas to go to the Soviet Union and then wind up in Spain, and they're taking part in a civil war in your country. Isn't this technically an American violation of neutrality? And I think it's I think it's technically an American violation of neutrality if those people aren't arrested as, as unlawful um, participants in a foreign war, which American citizens aren't supposed to take part in. I mean, let's say I'm an Italian citizen and I'm not an American citizen, and I come in America, even I, even if I gain American citizenship, let's say I'm a first-generation immigrant, and I start trying to recruit and entice Americans to go join the Italian army, I would have to register as an agent of a foreign government since I'm recruiting Americans for a foreign military, wouldn't I? Right. I, I would have to look at the laws, and I don't, I don't know if I'm, go- I'm not going to do the research. But there are there are there are laws against that. I just don't know when they were instituted. I thought they were instituted long before long before the Spanish Civil War. And I, I'm I'm assuming we we can safely uh, assume and agree that if there were people in America trying to recruit German Americans to return to Germany and join the SS in the 30s, they probably would have been arrested or deported. Oh, absolutely. Probably would have been hung. Back to Pataki, March 7, 1939. As a result of these speeches, the public is called upon to support rearmament and the spending of enormous sums of money for the Navy and the Air Force. The unmistakable idea behind this is that in case of an armed conflict, the United States cannot stay out but must take an active part in the maneuvers. As a result of the effective speeches of President Roosevelt, which are supported by the press, the American public is today being conscientiously manipulated to hate everything that smacks of totalitarianism and fascism. But it is interesting. Totalitarianism. Well, right. Or Stalin. Or as Pataki's about to raise the point, Stalin's totalitarianism. But it is interesting that the USSR is not included in all this. The American public considers Russia more in the camp of the democratic states. That's absolutely incredible, right? This was also the case during the Spanish Civil War when the so-called loyalists were regarded as defenders of the democratic idea. You know, there's a propaganda poster from World War II which shows a Soviet soldier in uniform. This man is a Russian. He is your friend and an ally in the fight for freedom. I have a little chuckle every time I come across that. Right. Back to Pataki. The State Department operates without attracting a great deal of attention. Although it is known that Secretary of State Cordell Hull and President Roosevelt swear allegiance to the same ideas. However, Hull shows more reserve than Roosevelt, and he loves to make a distinction between Nazism 
and Chancellor Hitler on the one hand, and the German people on the other. He considers this form of dictatorial government a temporary, necessary evil. In contrast, the State Department is unbelievably interested in the USSR and its internal situation, and openly worries itself over its weaknesses and decline. Now, the main government in America is committed to opposing communism, and they, they, they ostensibly, by word but not by deed, spoke about how they would defend America against the, the red menace and they would keep out communist agents. Why are they so worried about the internal weakness of the Soviet Union? If it's ripe to collapse and it's ready to collapse, if they're truly against communism, they would have just let it collapse under its own weight. Right. The main reason for the United States' interest in the Russians is the situation in the Far East. The current government would be glad to see the Red Army emerge as the victor in a conflict with Japan. That's why the sympathies of the government are clearly on the side of China, which recently received considerable financial aid amounting to $25 million. Now, so I'm not sure if you're aware, the um, Soviets actually fought a de facto war called the um, Border Wars for a, um, about a seven-year period, mostly along the Soviet-Manchurian border, and the Soviets crushed the Japanese and then concluded a neutrality pact with them. It was a series of border skirmishes involving several hundred thousand men, although with several hundred thousand men involved, I don't think you can call it a skirmish anymore, but the, the U.S. considered it a skirmish. And it'd be interesting to see if the U.S. provided any material aid to the Soviets at that time. That may be interesting. Eager attention is given to all information from the diplomatic posts as well as to the special emissaries of the president who serve as ambassadors of the United States. The president frequently calls his representatives from abroad to Washington for personal exchanges of views and to give them special information and instructions. The arrival of the envoys and ambassadors is always shrouded in secrecy and little, very little surfaces in the press about the results of their visits. The State Department also takes care to avoid giving out any kind of information about the course of these interviews. The practical way in which the president makes foreign policy is most effective. He gives personal instructions to his representatives abroad, most of whom are his personal friends. In this way, the United States has led down a dangerous path in world politics with the explicit intention of abandoning the comfortable policy of isolation. The president regards the foreign policy of his country as a means of satisfying his own personal ambition. Now, Jersey Pataki is basically at a... Um, he doesn't have an axe to grind, right? He's basically an objective witness at this time in 1939, I would think. He listens carefully and happily to his echo in the other capitals of the world. In domestic as well as in foreign policy, the Congress of the United States is the only object that stands in the way of the president and his government in carrying out his decisions quickly and ambitiously. 150 years ago, the Constitution of the United States gave the highest prerogatives to the American Parliament, which may criticize or reject the law of the White House. I think he has it a little backwards, right? But that's okay. The foreign policy of President Roosevelt has recently been the subject of intense discussion in the lower house and in the Senate, and this has caused excitement. 
The so-called isolationists, of whom there are many in both houses, have come out strongly against the president. The representatives and senators were especially upset over the remarks by the president, which were published in the press, in which he had said that the borders of the United States lie on the Rhine. But the president, but President Roosevelt is a superb political player and understands completely the power of the American Parliament. He has his own people there, and he knows how to withdraw from an uncomfortable situation at the right moment. Well, with a remark like that, at the very least, he should have been clobbered at the at the um, upcoming election, and at most, they, they should have moved to impeach him if he's talking about how the U.S. borders lie on the Rhine. He's a dangerous warmonger. Well, yeah, that, that's pretty bellicose, isn't it? Very intelligently and cleverly, he ties together the question of foreign policy with the issues of American rearmament. He particularly stresses the necessity of spending enormous sums in order to maintain a defensive peace. He says specifically that the United States is not arming in order to intervene or to go to the aid of England or France in case of war but rather because of the need to show strength and military preparedness in case of an armed conflict in Europe. In his view, this conflict is becoming ever more acute and is completely unavoidable. Since the issue is presented this way, the Houses of Congress have no cause to object. To the contrary, the Houses accepted an armament program of more than $1 billion. That was a lot of money in 1939, wasn't it? The normal budget is $550 million, the emergency $552 million. However, under the cloak of a rearmament policy, President Roosevelt continues to push forward his foreign policy, which unofficially shows, that the world, shows the world that in case of war, the United States will come out on the side of the democratic states with all military and financial power. In conclusion, it can be said, and, and this is months before this is two months before the um, the Lend Lease Act was signed, right? March 1939. Yes, I believe so. Well, well, I think this this paper from Jersey Pataki, this one might be from March 1939. This is from March 7, 1939. Lend Lease was Public Law 77-11. He signed the first Lend Lease Act into law, it looks like, in 1941. And they say by 1941, 54% of Americans were unqualified in favor of Lend-Lease. A further 15% were in favor only if, quote, it doesn't get us into war. Okay, I'm, I apologize. The, the Lend-Lease Act preceded the, the um, declaration of war on Japan and Germany by six months. Uh, I'm thinking you were thinking of the um, the 1939 Neutrality Act. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly enough, this Neutrality Act prohibited Americans and American ships, citizens and ships, from entering war zones designated by the president. So I, I wonder, would he consider Spain a war zone, or is it okay for American Jewish communists to go to Spain? Although I think by the time 19... 39 was the year the, the Civil War in Spain ended, though, so at that point it was probably moved. Bill? Yes. Yes. 
I don't know if we lost our connection to talk shoe. Wow. I don't see you on the call. Whoa, it says call has ended. Well, I have a recording on my stream, right? right. We'll go with my stream. Shall we keep rolling or end here for yes. oh. No, we'll we'll um finish this last page. In conclusion, it can be said that the technical and moral preparation of the American people for participation in a war if one should break out in Europe, is proceeding rapidly. It appears that the United States will come to the aid of France and Great Britain with all its resources right from the beginning. However, I know the American public and the representatives and senators who all have the final word, and I am of the opinion that the possibility that America will enter war as in 1917 is not great. That's because the majority of states in the Midwest and West where the rural element predominates, want to avoid involvement in European disputes at all costs. They remember the declaration of the Versailles Treaty and the well-known phrase that the war was to save the world for democracy. Neither the Versailles Treaty nor that slogan have reconciled the United States to that war. For millions, there remains only a bitter aftertaste because of unpaid billions which the European states still owe America. Jules, Julius Lucas Siewitz, Poland's ambassador to France, reported to Warsaw on March 29, 1939, about further conversations with U.S. envoy Bullitt in Paris. Lucas Siewitz discussed Roosevelt's efforts to get both Poland and Britain to adopt a totally uncompromising policy towards Germany, even in the face of strong sentiment for peace. The report concludes with these words. I consider it my duty to inform you of all the aforesaid because I believe the collaboration with Ambassador Bullitt in such difficult and complicated times may prove useful to us. Remember that um, Bullitt had promised the Poles that Poland would be protected if it went to war with Germany, right? And, and that was already done. In any case, it is absolutely certain that he agrees entirely with our point of view and is prepared for the most extensive friendly collaboration possible. In order to strengthen the efforts of the American ambassador in London, referring to Joseph Kennedy, I call the attention of Ambassador Bullitt to the fact that it is not impossible that the British may treat the efforts of the United States with well-concealed contempt. He answered that I am probably right, but nevertheless the United States has at its disposal the means to really bring pressure on England. He would be giving serious consideration to mobilizing these means. You want to pick it up from here? One moment. The Polish ambassador in London, Count Edward Rasazinski, reported the Warsaw on 29 March 1939 on the continuing European crisis and on a conversation he had with Ambassador Joseph Kennedy, his American counterpart, Kennedy's remarks to Rasazinski confirmed Bullitt's reputation in diplomatic circles as an indiscreet big mouth. Wouldn't that be in keeping with a Jew? They seem to have a difficulty keeping secrets, don't they? I asked Mr. Kennedy point blank about the conference which he is supposed to have had recently with British Prime Minister Mr. Chamberlain concerning Poland. Kennedy was surprised and declared categorically that a conversation of such special significance never took place. 
at the same time, and thereby contradicting his own assertion to a certain extent, Kennedy expressed displeasure and surprise that his colleagues in Paris and Warsaw, William Bullitt and Anthony Biddle, quote, who are not as, him, as himself in a position to get a clear picture of conditions in England, quote, should talk so openly about this conversation. Mr. Kennedy, who made me understand that his views were based on a series of conversations with the most important authorities here, declared that he was convinced that should Poland decide in favor of armed resistance against Germany, especially with regard to Danzig, it would draw England in its wake. This concludes the excerpts from the Polish reports. Okay, we're going to cut this program here. The talk show, talk show, for some reason, I don't know why, talk show ended the program. I, I don't know if that's a – I couldn't even get back there. I, I have no idea why talk show did that. It might be a glitch in talk show software, but the call simply ended. This program is on a stream, and Christogenia has its own recording of the program, so we will post that recording on org. I will be here in two weeks. I will be off next week. I will be vacationing in Pennsylvania. Pastor Mark Downey and Pastor Ken Lent will fill in next week on the Friday program with a discussion on the Constitution Christian. It will be announced on the front page of Christogenia. Sword Brethren will be here with Boxar. I won't. I don't know if um, he wants me to publish his, his actual name. Boxar has been a great assistance to um, both myself and at times to Eli James over the last three years. And, and I don't know what they're going to discuss. Brian, what are you going to what are you going to discuss next week, next Saturday? I guess we'll, we'll surprise you. Okay. Well, that's it. He'll surprise us. Thank you for that's listening. That's my way of saying we haven't quite decided yet. <laughs> okay. Praise Yahweh, and and I'll see you in two weeks. All right. Praise Yahweh. Thank you. Oh,